real quick, and that way you don't have to get up a second time as we read God's Word together from 1 Timothy tonight is where we're going to continue. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that we've been doing a series through the book of 1 Timothy, and we arrive at the final verses of chapter 1 tonight in a message titled, Avoiding Casualties in the War of Faith. Awarding casualties in the war of faith from 1 Timothy. We're going to read verses 18 down to verse 20 at the end of the chapter. So Paul writes these words to his son in the faith, Timothy. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you tonight, Lord, depending on you, looking to you alone to give us strength, to give us the anointing that we need to preach the Word of God, and ask you, Lord, to give those that hear my voice ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to receive what you would have from them, God. Pray that the Holy Spirit would move among us. We've already lifted up our voices in song, and now may we prepare our hearts, Father, to uh, receive the word of faith. So, Lord, speak to us tonight. Uh, may you increase and I decrease, and we promise to give you praise for everything you do, for this is your church and we are your people, and we thank you for that tonight, for it's in and through the blood of Christ that we've been bought and purchased, and we praise you for that tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The last time that we gathered here for worship, when we looked at uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, we saw that uh, he had reminded Timothy of the charge that he had been given. I want to go back to verse 12 just to refresh your memories of chapter 1 about what exactly Paul had been encouraging Timothy according to uh, what his duties were and responsibilities. Paul said in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. And so we remember that Paul was trying to encourage this young man uh, who was in a difficult situation in Ephesus in a difficult church. Uh, Timid Timothy was not the boldest of men, uh, and he may have been a little sickly on top of that. So not only was he not courageous internally, but he may have looked a little bit weakly externally. And so perhaps some people thought... uh, differently of him or didn't respect him the way that they should have and so Paul was using himself as an example and he said I want you to remember Timothy uh, who it is that called me into the ministry and who it was that strengthened me for the work ahead and and I want you to remember that my life and my testimony has not always been easy Uh, as I've served Christ I've faced many hardships and trials and yet God has been faithful to me and he'll be faithful to you and so he wants Timothy to remember that from his own life And just as God did for Paul, he promised to do for Timothy. And just as he has done for me in my calling in ministry, he will do for you, God's people, uh, as you serve him. And so if you're saved, God, as we talked about, has called you into service. When we're saved, he saves us with a purpose and with a calling on our lives. And we're accountable to God for that calling on our lives. Uh, We will give an account, not for our salvation, which Christ has secured for us, but we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ for our works and our labors uh, and what we have done with the talents and gifts that God has given us without question. And so 
when we look at Paul's letter to Ephesus in Ephesians 4.16, uh, as he says that God gave the church pastors uh, and apostles and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But in verse 16 of that chapter, listen to how he uses the language and incorporates the entire church into that call. He says in Ephesians 4.16, the whole body, so he doesn't exclude anyone there, he's speaking to everyone, the whole body joined and held together with every joint. So using that imagery of a body like he does in the letter to the Corinthians, uh, we're all members of the body, we all matter, we all have a purpose. And he says we're joined together by every joint, and as it's equipped, as each part, you see that? Each part has to work properly, he says. It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What a beautiful picture when everything is functioning well, when people are using their gifts, when we're united. Man, there's nothing that the church of God can't accomplish through Him. You know, we, we, read, we read in the New Testament and we look at the book of Acts and we see the things that God did through His church. And even throughout history, we see the great revivals and we see uh, the moving of God in America and even across Europe. And we think, man, I long to see those days again. Why can't we? Why can't we? It's because we've lost our passion for prayer. We've lost the urgency. We've lost the anguish for lost people. Church, the reason why we don't have the things that the early church has is we don't have the passion for the Word of God and for the power of God like they did. It's not that Jesus is lacking. It's not that the Spirit is lacking. It's that we are lacking in our commitment dedication to the things of God. And if we will get serious about that, I believe without a doubt that God will still do great things through His people. Amen? And so it's up to us tonight. Absolutely. It's up to us tonight to surrender completely and to depend on Him and to take Him at His Word. And we can see great things happen through the power of God. Some of you may know the name Bud Wilkinson. Uh, he was a famous coach for the Oklahoma Sooners, uh, particularly in the 50s and into the early 60s. They won three national championships under Bud Wilkinson. And so there was a, a young reporter one day that was so excited because he was going to get a chance to interview this legendary coach. And so uh, the, the story goes that he, uh, he goes up to the coach, and, and his first question may sound a little bit odd, but at the time it was a big subject matter uh, that was going on. And he said, Coach Wilkinson, uh, tell us what contribution collegiate football has made toward physical fitness in America. And he was kind of taken aback by the coach's response to that question. He, he answered the reporter and he said, I do not believe that football has made any contribution to physical fitness in America. And the young reporter was kind of dumbfounded and he, and he asked the coach, why, why do you say that? What do you mean? And Coach Wilkinson said, I say that because I define football as 22 men on the field desperately needing rest and 50,000 people in the stands desperately needing exercise. Now you think about that for a minute. He's really got a point. 22 men exhausting themselves, chasing a ball around the field, while 100,000 nowadays, right, scream and cheer, uh, and sit back with hot dogs and pretzels and nachos and all kinds of other things, watching these guys exhaust themselves. Uh, and, and, you know, when you get that picture in your mind, we, we see the large amount of spectators and the few on the field playing the game. But sadly, that's a picture of the church today. If we think about it, there are a few out on the mission field 
while the majority sit in the padded pews and watch and maybe even cheer them on. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way because Christianity is in no way, shape, or form a spectator sport. We have been bought with a price and placed into service. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're able physically to exhaust yourself with physical uh, exertion as you once did, but that doesn't mean that you don't have a purpose and a place in the church of God still. And maybe you're young and strong and you're burning out and wasting all your energy on all kinds of worldly pursuits and you're too tired by the end of the day to give God anything else. Your priorities have become all misplaced. And both of those are bad places for any of us to get to. Uh, because there, there aren't just certain people in the church that are called to ministry. All of us are. Certainly within the church we have pastors and elders and deacons, and those may be positions in the church. But all of us are servants, and all of us have an obligation to serve one another as we serve Christ and His kingdom. And so that was really what Paul was emphasizing uh, to young Timothy. And so we come to our text today, and I want you to look with me again at that beginning at verse 18. I want you to see some things that I believe will challenge us tonight. It certainly challenged me this week. Uh, He says that uh, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy. So the charge, or that could be worded this command, this order that I'm giving to you. Uh, Paul used that same language earlier in the chapter in verses 3 and 5, and and when we talked about that, we remember um, that the charge was, Timothy, preach the Word, preach faithfully, stay true to the faith, stay true to the doctrine, right? Don't compromise. That was one part of it. And then the other part was, expose those that are teaching false doctrine. Point it out. Call it out. Don't let your people be led astray by false teaching. And so the duty of Timothy and the duty of any minister is to preach the truth and point out error so God's people can stay safe from the wolves and see the enemy when he comes. Amen? And so that was the charge that was given um, by Paul through the Holy Spirit to Timothy and the charge that we have today. He has an order, Timothy does, to obey. And so do you and I. Uh, in James one twenty two. James writes, be doers of the word and not hearers only. In the scriptures, in other places, it talks about that there is a famine. I believe it's in Amos. Uh, He says there is a famine in the land. But this famine is not for bread and for meat and for food that we ingest. He said there's a famine for the word of God. I would say that that prophecy is not so much true today. I would say quite the opposite. We are inundated with information. It's not the problem of getting the Word of God, at least in America. We have access to it everywhere you look. Most of us have shelves of Bibles, multiple apps on our phone with Bibles. We have access to a multitude of free podcasts and preaching, right? We can get the Word 24-7, 365 in a multitude of ways. The problem is we get all this information and have little action as a result. What are we doing with all the things that we take in? All the podcasts, all the Bible studies, all the small groups are certainly beneficial. But we can't just be hearers of the Word. We have to be doers. When God speaks to us through His Word, it's not to just take in information. It's to be challenged to go and act upon the things that God gives us. 
And that is the real challenge for us as American Christians. It's not to get access to the Word, it's to respond by faith to the Word. And so he says, be doers of the Word and not hearers, because obedience is one of the proofs that you love Jesus. Did you know that? It doesn't matter if you say you love Jesus, if you sing, oh, how I love Jesus, because He first loved me. Obedience is one of the fruits, one of the proofs that you love Jesus. He said so Himself in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. If, there's the conditional word, if you love me, the result is going to be a keeping or a desire to keep my commandments, right? Matter of fact, obedience is a sign that you are truly saved. You cannot claim to know Christ and show no obedience in your life to the things that Christ commands you to do. In 1 John 2, 3, he writes, And by this we know that we have come to know Him. By what? If we keep His commands. You see? By this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commands. There's that conditional. There's that hinge, right? You can claim to know Him, but if there's no fruit involved, then we question whether or not you truly do. You should question whether or not you truly do. So he's entrusted. Timothy's been entrusted with this charge. Uh, That word literally means to set before someone. So think about uh, a, a banquet being set out on a table. That's the imagery that Paul is using. Uh, this has been entrusted to Timothy. It's, it's been laid out for him. There's a charge to go and to obey, and God has set everything up for Timothy. He's provided. That's what our God does for us. He provides opportunities for us to obey, right? If, if, if God has gifted you, if God has equipped you to do certain things, if you ask for opportunities to use your gift... I can promise that opportunities will be put before you. Again, the problem is not intellectual. The problem is not for opportunities. The problem is lack of faith to walk in obedience, right? Our minds and our hearts are so cluttered with other things that we fail to see or fail to act upon the things that God has given us or presented before us. And Paul is telling Timothy, I've given you a charge. God has given you a charge. He's entrusted you as a minister of the gospel to be obedient to these things. What are you going to do with them, Timothy? And that's a good question for us to ask ourselves tonight. What are we going to do with the opportunities that God has placed before us? Not just as a church as a whole, but as individuals within the body. What do we do each day in the 24 hours that we're given. What are we doing to serve God? Because, make no mistake, we are in a war. We are in a war as believers, but we don't live like we really believe that. The Bible warns us over and over of a spiritual warfare, of a real battle that's taking place between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil, and yet we don't live as though we really believe we're in a war. We don't act like it. I'm going to take you back to the book of Jude, which we, we mentioned a few weeks ago. In Jude, it's only one chapter long, but in verse 3, uh, he uses some wording there, uh, especially in the King James, he brings it out forcefully. He says, I want you to earnestly contend for the faith. I want you to contend for the faith. That word contend is from a Greek word that we actually get our English word agony. 
So we could literally paraphrase that to say we should be agonizing over the faith or for the faith. It's really an athletic term that would picture an athlete exerting himself or herself to the point of exhaustion, uh, to the point where you are agonizing. You don't have anything left to give. That's the kind of contending for the faith that Jude encourages believers to be taking part in. Do we live as though we believe that that much energy and effort is required to defend and keep the faith? I don't see it. I don't see it in my own life, and I don't see it in the life of the church. And that should trouble us. Because again, you hear my voice, you nod in agreement, and we'll all walk out the door and not change anything. Right? It does no good for us to process information and allow it to just funnel out through our ears and our hearts and not be moved to change. Not be moved to resolve in our hearts that we are going to commit ourselves to the work of the Lord. To engage in this warfare, church, that we are in. The time is at hand for us to get serious. Our families need it. Our world needs it. They have to know the gospel before they die lost. And we are the ones that have been charged and equipped to bring it to them. If not us, who? If not now, when? Who is going to go? Who is going to answer the call, church? We can't keep kicking the can down the road. We can't keep passing it off to someone else. It's been laid at each and every one of our feet to get serious about the work of God. Will you answer that call? Because there is a real devil, there is a real hell, there is an eternity, and people without Jesus are marching headlong toward destruction and into destruction. Every two seconds, someone dies. Think about that. In the short time that we've been gathered here, hundreds of people have perished, most of them without Christ. Does that concern you at all? It should. And if it does then before you simply say amen and leave here and never share the gospel with anyone the rest of the week, ask God to burden your heart for someone. I'm not saying you've got to set up a soapbox on the corner and preach Christ and the gospel to everyone that walks by, but if He burdens you for that, then do it. But certainly we should not zip our lips and turn our eyes while our world dies lost around us. And so he commands and he charges us that this is a real battle and we've been charged to get in the fight. He says, fight this war, this war of faith. Uh, wage the good warfare, the ESV translates it at the end of uh, verse 18. And so again, are we putting on our armor? Are we engaged? Are we lined up to fight in this battle? I love what Pastor Stephen Cole said. He, he, he says it this way. He says, to serve the Lord faithfully, you've got to realize that you're in for the long haul and it isn't going to be easy. Some people get all excited about ministry and then they burn out. Others get excited until problems hit and then they quit. Others bail out when they catch criticism, which you will. Others expect instant results, and when it doesn't happen, they get discouraged and quit. Others are so excited about ministry, they don't get any training, and they run dry after a while. All of these problems could be solved if people would realize that ministry to which God has called each one of us is a lifetime campaign against a powerful enemy. A lifetime campaign against a powerful enemy. You have got to... Put on the armor of God and die to self daily. It's not going to be an easy road. It's not going to be a quick fix. This is a lifelong battle, church. Are you ready for that? You have got to 
and immerse yourself in the Word of God and in prayer and fellowship with one another and encourage one another. And there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs. And you have got to ask yourself, am I ready to go at this thing for the long haul until Christ calls me home? That's the question. And so he challenges Timothy to hold the faith and a good conscience. Hold the faith and a good conscience. What's he saying there? He's really just saying this. Stay grounded, stay sound in both your belief and your behavior. In your faith pointing to the belief side of things and your conscience pointing to the way that you live those things out. Stay sound and grounded in your belief and your behavior. Let the Word of God shape and mold the way that you live your life. Good advice for a young pastor and good advice for the people of God tonight in his church. And so he says that what happens is there are some people that do exactly the opposite. And that's where I want to really kind of take a turn now and, and, and warn us uh, a very serious and solemn warning that Paul gives Timothy here. Because if, if Timothy's encouraged to hold to the faith and keep a good conscience, so as a result of staying grounded in the fundamentals of the faith, as we walk in that truth, our lives will be shaped more into a godly Christ-like example False teachers do exactly the opposite. They begin to live ungodly lives. They begin to compromise the truth. And as a result of that, they begin to justify their false teaching and justify their sinful lifestyles. And we see it, and it's heartbreaking over and over how many times we see folks that were once on fire for God, maybe once pastored churches who have fallen away from the faith altogether or are now proclaiming unbiblical, heretical things. Amen? Amen. We all have seen it. We all know people, perhaps in our own families, that were once on fire for God, that once put us to shame in their faithfulness, and yet now... They're nowhere to be found. Certainly won't find them in a church any longer or with their face in the Word of God. What happened? Well, perhaps for some, they fell into the same error of these men that Paul mentions. I want you to see again that he gives us the name of of two folks in verse 20. He said that, you know, if, if you hold the faith and have a good conscience, Timothy, you'll do well. But he said, by rejecting this, there are some that have made a shipwreck of their faith. That literally means they've come to ruin, right? They've crashed upon the rocks, so to speak, because they didn't hold to the faith and their conscience, as a result, was seared. And he lists two names for us, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Can you imagine to have your names penned in the Word of God and be remembered for all to read that you were someone that apostatized from the faith, that walked away from the truth? Who were these men? Well, one, we know for sure, Hymenaeus, because he's mentioned. Uh, The other, perhaps, is mentioned. We're not sure if Alexander is the same Alexander that's mentioned, but there's a good chance that it is. So, assuming that it is, Hymenaeus is mentioned in 2 Timothy Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. What was going on in his life that Paul would call him out by name uh, as someone that has made a shipwreck of the faith? Well, here's what happened with him. 
In 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18, he says, their talk will spread like gangrene. What a, what a picture, right? A little infection that eventually consumes the body and will bring about death. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved. That's a military term. If any of you were in the military and you had to march in a line in cadence, right? That word means to get out of step. You were marching in line orderly according to the command where you were supposed to go. Somewhere along the line, you swerved. You got out of step with where you were supposed to be going. He said they swerved from what? The truth. They, they stepped away. They stepped out of line from the truth. Saying that the resurrection has already happened. And they are upsetting the faith of some. You see, these were false teachers. They were telling folks that the resurrection was over and that the second coming, perhaps, of Christ had already taken place. And they were causing the church all kinds of issues. People, believers, were confused and perhaps even following this false teaching from Hymenaeus. In 2 Timothy 4.14 Alexander is mentioned. We can't conclusively prove that this is the same Alexander uh, that Paul is speaking of in 1 Timothy, but it's a pretty good chance that it is. And if so, it says of him there, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. So if Hymenaeus was teaching false doctrine, his faith had strayed away, Um, For Alexander, he too had departed from the faith, but his actions had come along to where he was actually an enemy now of Paul and the preaching of the gospel. He was actively working against Paul. He was doing great harm to the man of God in the church. So both of these men had departed from the faith and a good conscience and had made a shipwreck of their faith. What a tragic thing to be remembered in the pages of Scripture as someone who walked away and destroyed themselves because they left behind the truth. Because you can have all the knowledge in the world about what's right, but as we said before, if that knowledge has never truly changed your heart and made you a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, you can go through all the motions all your life and die lost. And that is the scariest thing to me as a preacher of the gospel to stand before people who may sit in pews all their life and have never truly met Jesus Christ personally and confessed their sins and repented and turned to Him. I want you above all things to understand that the gospel is not just a story for me to tell you. It's a person for whom you must know and believe in. The gospel is about a real living person named Jesus Christ, the God-man. The Word became flesh, and He did dwell among us. He was born in the city of Bethlehem, and He lived a spotless life as the Son of God. He fulfilled the law that you and I could never keep. And He went willingly to the cross and laid down His life as God's sacrifice. He shed His blood for you and for me and for all of the world. But to receive that takes repentance and faith. It doesn't take joining a church. It doesn't take working harder. It doesn't take memorizing portions of Scripture or going to seminary. 
It takes a humility to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I am lost and on my way to hell. And if you do not save me and change my heart, I have no hope. That is the truth of the gospel that you must understand and receive. And I'm fearful that too many people know the story of Jesus and the gospel accounts of Jesus, but don't know Jesus. You have to know Him. You have to know Him, and you do that by faith. You do that by faith tonight. Not putting it off any longer. One of the most tragic stories that I heard many years ago, and I've never forgotten it, and perhaps you've heard me use this illustration before. But in the 1940s, there were two famous evangelists that had come on the scene. These men were filling up arenas with people coming to hear the gospel to be preached. These men became close friends and even preached a European revival for youth conferences during that time. They were filling up stadiums with young people coming to hear the gospel be preached. One of these men was preaching with such power and such anointing on his life that a seminary president, a very, sem- a very prominent seminary president, said of this man, he is the most gifted, talented preacher in America. A magazine wrote an article about this young man and said that he is the Babe Ruth of evangelism. During this time as these two men were out in this European revival, a third man came upon the scene in America. He was drawing huge crowds also to hear the gospel. This man was so popular that he went to Baylor University and they cut the ropes on the bell tower so the bells wouldn't ring because they didn't want anything to disturb him while he preached. And he preached to college students at Baylor University for two and a half hours while they sat on the edges of their seats captivated by this man as he shared Jesus with them. At 25 years old, they said that this young man touched more lives, influenced more leaders, and set more attendance records in America than anyone preaching at that time ever had. So I want to ask you something tonight. What happened to these three men? What happened to these men? The first guy that I mentioned, the one that was the Babe Ruth of evangelism, This man who was friends with the other fella, his name was George Templeton. His name was George Templeton. And after a decade of preaching in these great revivals, George Templeton declared himself to be an agnostic. He walked away from the faith and began a career in radio and broadcasting. And in 1996, he wrote a book titled Farewell to God my reasons for rejecting the Christian faith. He died at 86 years old, an unbeliever with dementia. And what about the other man, the third man? This third man that preached at Baylor University and filled up stadiums. His name was Bron Clifford. Another name that you've probably never heard of. Bron Clifford, he died in a rundown hotel in Amarillo, Texas at the age of 35 years old from cirrhosis of the liver due to alcohol addiction. He left his wife and two Down Syndrome children penniless. 
few pastors in Amarillo had to raise enough money to have a cheap casket bought and he was shipped back to the East Coast where he was buried in a pauper cemetery. George Templeton and Ron Clifford started well, but they shipwrecked their faith. So what about the third guy? What about the third man? What happened to him? He died on February 21st, 2018, at 99 years old. He wrote 33 books, and he preached the gospel to an estimated 215 million people in 185 countries and territories, with over 3 million people supposedly making professions of faith. His name was Billy Graham. And that's the story of three men that began in the same place and the same time would what appeared to have God's anointing on all three. But only one finished the race, stayed the course. I read a survey not too long ago that said that only one out of ten men who start a ministry at the age of 21 serve until they're 65 years old. One in ten start well and finish. And so my question for all of us tonight is this. Will you finish strong for the Lord? Will you finish strong for Christ? Because every one of us don't ever think that you can't become a shipwreck. I believe in eternal security. I preach it with all my heart. But I don't know if you're saved and you don't know if I'm saved. We examine our fruit and we judge based on that, but only God knows the heart. So we examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And we strive to make our calling and election sure. And the Bible says that we can have every bit of assurance to know that we have believed. But it's still good to examine ourselves and make sure that we have what we claim to have. That we are possessors and not just professors of the truth. Because in Hebrews 2.1, there's another warning there. It says, therefore we must, play, must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. When you hear the Word of God, and it no longer convicts you, when you hear the Word of God and it no longer excites you, when it no longer challenges you, when it no longer fills your heart with joy for the Savior, perhaps you're drifting and you don't even realize it. I want to ask you again tonight, Will you look at your life, or better yet, will you let the Spirit and the Word of God look at your life, as I pray it already has tonight? What are you tolerating in your life tonight that in times past you never would have tolerated? There may be things in your life tonight that as a young believer you would have never thought to look at, to listen to, to go to, to engage in. And yet over time you've softened your stance on those things, and you tolerate more and more. Where have you slacked up? How much have you ceased in your serving, in your commitment to Christ and His church and to the things of God? You used to have a hunger for the Word. You used to be uh, a prayer warrior. You used to be the first one in the doors of the church. You used to faithfully bring your kids. And now slowly you've backed off that a little bit. And you've allowed other things in your life. I'm not saying that those things will ultimately cause you to end up a casualty. But there are certainly warning signs. And if the lighthouse, if Jesus Christ has shined His light into your heart tonight, 
and exposed areas that need to be repented of and need to be rooted up so that you can get back to where you need to be. Before Caleb plays a a note on the guitar, I pray that you'll be on this altar and that you'll be asking God to change your heart, not just for tonight, not just for this week, but to change your heart for as long as you live on this earth, that you will serve Christ, that you will follow Christ, and that you'll do everything you can each day to glorify Him in your life, in your home, in your work, in your school, and in your church. That's the challenge for all of us tonight. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior. He died for your sins tonight, and He saves you and He keeps you. But my friends, we have to strive to stay in step with who He is and where He's called us by using our gifts and not just being hearers of the Word, but being doers. If you're willing, and I pray you are tonight, to heed that warning and let Christ cleanse you of the things that need to be cleansed of, then we're going to give an invitation, and that's your chance to respond to it. I pray that you will. Let's pray tonight. Lord God, we come before you now solemn, Lord, and expectant that your word doesn't return void, that your spirit will accomplish everything that's necessary. You promised that he would convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment to come. And so, Lord, if there's sin in our hearts tonight in this room, We know that as believers, Christ has washed our souls clean. But yet, for our walk, Lord, we need daily repentance and confession. And so, God, for those in this room that uh, know tonight, without a shadow of a doubt, that they've compromised, that they have ceased their service, that they've allowed things in their life that shouldn't be there, Lord, may they lay those down tonight and ask you with everything in them to set set themselves on fire again for you and serve you. And Lord God, if there's someone in this room that's been playing the game and going through the motions, but really has never given their life to Christ, Father, I pray tonight that you would let them see the danger that they're in, but also the hope that they have if they'll repent and believe the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which was lost. That whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lord, the words of that hymn ring true. You lay down your life for sinners like us. May we come, take of the water of life freely. God, may we leave here changed and challenged and transformed by the good news of Christ and His gospel. Lord, we thank you. Pray now that you would draw men to yourself and be glorified by it in Jesus' name. Amen. Biggest hurt I've ever experienced in my life this year. I had a father walk out when I was seven, and that hurt. I had a stepfather try to molest me when I was 15, and that hurt. But I rank some of the things I experienced this year with as much hurt as any of those. And I don't say that tonight to point fingers at anybody. I say that tonight because God enabled me to forgive people that deeply hurt me. And I know I've hurt people too, and I pray they forgive me. But I'm going to tell you one thing. You cannot serve God with bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart. You can't, run, you can't lead your family well. You can't serve the church well. And you can't leave, live your life for Christ with hate in your heart towards someone. Listen to me. Forgiveness is commanded. Reconciliation may or may not happen. 
Boundaries may need to be erected. Guardrails need to be put up. But forgiveness is not optional. And so I'm asking you tonight, we're going to sing one more verse. I pray that you've got things right with God. But I can tell you this under the authority of the Scripture. You do not have things right with God if you don't have things right with your, with your neighbor. If there are people in this room, people in your street, people at your work, people in your family, that you've got grievances against and they've done you wrong, it's time to bury the hatchet. It's time to forgive. I'm telling you, God's blessing will be poured out on you and on this church and on your family, but not until you do that. He said, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and give your gift to me. So Caleb, as we, list, as we play one more verse, if you need to forgive tonight, I know it's hard. I know you probably don't even want to. I didn't want to either. But I had to go put my arms around the neck of people that hurt me and let them know I forgave them. And God set me free. And He'll do that for you tonight. Would you do that tonight? Somebody needed to hear that. How deep